Good morning. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, it's Father's Day. And there are, to the, to, the, to the biological fathers, to the stepdads, to the foster dads, to the adopted dads, and to, honestly, whether you've had your own legal or biological children, but some, some dads in here have played the dad role in kids outside of that sphere, we just, we're very grateful. We're very grateful for you. Now, to the dads, I want to say one more thing, and my exhortation to you this morning is love your kids. Our world suffers for a severe lack of fatherly affection. And the people of God need to lead the way in that. So dads, love your kids. Love them. I got four. I fail constantly. God is good. But love your kids. Okay? Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the chance to be here to worship together. Lord, to worship you together amongst family. And so, God, we pray that as we look at the life of Abram, Lord, that you would confront us in our own circumstances, Lord, that you would confront perhaps where we are comfortable, Lord, and that we would have just hearts soft to receive, to reflect, to be challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're in a series called Unusable, looking at different characters throughout Scripture who, for whatever the reason, either the world or the religious, would deem them unqualified. And so this week, we're looking at the life of Abram. Before we get there, I just, I went online and I was just curious, you know, some of the people that perhaps the world might look up to in different areas of expertise, just seeing where perhaps they have failed and yet done really well. Just some fun things, fun things. Did you know, for instance, there's lots of, lots of babies, love children, we love kids. Steven Spielberg was rejected by film school three times. Do you know that? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, he, they, they didn't find him usable. Albert Einstein had the words, quote, mentally slow written on his school's permanent record when he was a kid. Michael Jordan was devastated when, as a sophomore, because he wasn't tall enough, he didn't make the varsity team. He would go on in, in a, uh, a promotional campaign to share that he had missed 9,000 shots, lost over 300 games, 26 times was trusted to take the game-winning shot, and missed. Just interesting kind of the shortcomings of people that we look upon in the world as the greats. Today, we zero in on the life of a man named Abram, and eventually would be named Abraham. We're looking mostly at the time of his life in which he was called Abram, but if I say Abraham, I'm talking about the same person. So let's not get obsessed about where his name is at at a particular time. And two things in particular we're going to focus on. One is his family background, and two it's his own personal mistakes. We're talking about his family, we're talking about his mistakes. And so beginning with his family, my point that we're gonna drive home as we look at the bit of background that we do have on, have on him is this, that your family's past matters, but God's purposes matter more. Your family's past matters, but God's purposes matter more. I just wanna take stock of where we are at in our world on this topic, and we're gonna read some scripture. Generational baggage is real. Some of this, some, many of us know this from experience. Let's be honest. What we do for many of us and how we perceive ourselves is often heavily shaped by the environment in which we grew up, by the home that we found ourselves in. We've inherited things, good and bad, from our parents. We have learned some things, good and bad, from our parents. Any parent knows 
You have that moment with your kid when they say something they shouldn't say and you think to yourself, where did they learn that? And you realize they learned it from you. That happens. You know, it's just working with element. So element, I didn't say this last service, bonus for you. Spent a lot of time working with like older elementary school kids, both at camps and in ministry. And it's crazy how often someone in the eight to 10 year old range will say, and they don't even, they'll say this. Well, my mom and dad, my mom always says blank. Or my dad always says blank to a circumstance. And how many times I've thought to myself, your mom or dad really doesn't want you sharing that. <laughs> and so kids are honest. Uh, anyways, my kids aren't there yet, but they'll get there. But we do. We pick up things from our parents. Oftentimes our sense of what we can or cannot do, our confidence, our capacity can be tied to that environment. And we see this in lots of areas of life. We see it in the way that perhaps the kinds of jobs people did were passed down from generation to generation. Bruce Springsteen picks this up in one of his songs, The River. I'm not gonna sing it. Where he says, I come down from down in the valley where mister, when you're young, they bring you up to do like your daddy done. Inheriting from their family. That's referring to work, but we see it in habits and preferences, some good, some bad. Education researchers have found that kids who grow up in a home in which they're not just read to, but in which they see their parents reading for themselves are far more likely to love reading because they watch their parents read. We see this in bad habits and harmful habits. Kids that grow up with an alcoholic parent are four times more likely to engage in excessive drinking. Kids who grow up where smoking happens in their house are twice as likely to be addicted to cigarettes by age 21. Sometimes, the similarities between us and the generation before us run even deeper than that, not just habits or preferences, but in our own biology and our genetics. I inherited allergies from my mom. Anybody else in that camp? Thank you, mom. You've been seeing the pollen counts. It's crazy out there. Again, thank you, mom. But from my dad, I inherited something a little bit more sinister. A decade ago, my, my wife and I were serving as respite workers at a camp for kids with reactive attachment disorder. And kids, for whatever the reason, go through trauma early in life and it makes them unable to connect relationally with others and to empathize. And so psychologists, psychiatrists, neurologists come and they do seminars equipping parents on how to do therapy and they scan their brains and you can see an unhealthy brain and then after years of therapy, you see a healthy brain and the change is pretty miraculous. And so at the end of this seminar, they asked the volunteers, they said, Any, we have extra slots, does anybody want a brain scan? And I went in and I got mine done. And I'll never forget sitting down across from the expert as they looked at my scan and they said, Zach, do you suffer with depression? It's like, no, I don't think so. Reflecting on my life once or twice a year, I go through these extreme bouts of apathy, is what I would call it, apathy. I wouldn't call it that strong a word. She shows me my scan. She says, Zach, your, your brain scan shows that you're strongly predisposed to depression. Now, I didn't receive that in a vacuum because my father took his life. Wrestling and being confronted with and having to be active through the different kinds of things that for whatever the reason I've inherited from my parents, from the environments, from their decisions, from their biology. Generational baggage is real. And for Abram, God gives us a very brief and yet incredibly significant insight into his family background. And he does that in Joshua 24. I'm going to read two verses for us. 
It says that Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. What a small and seemingly insignificant detail. And yet when you think about who Abraham was, the father of the, what he became as the father of Israel, the break, the pivot, the trajectory change in his life for this to happen was massive. I wanna give you a few contextual details to help us understand this. As we think about this thing about Abram's uh, uh, family. One, idols were personal and tied to inheritance. And what I'm about to share has to do with, we don't have anything written about the family of Abraham specifically, but we have records from people groups around the time and in that particular area, that idols were deeply personal for a family and they were tied to an inheritance. Meaning that when, uh, the, the firstborn in your house received the inheritance. It came along with idols. And with the idols came the inheritance. They were tied inextricably together. And some Old Testament scholars even argue that when Abram's grandson, Jacob, his wife, Rachel, she went into her father's house and stole the idols. Some scholars argue the reason she did that is so that she could come back later and claim her inheritance because she had the idols. That this lays us as our backdrop as Abram decides he's going to leave a life of idolatry when God calls him. The second thing that I want us to realize is the social and cultural norms for the ancient Near East thought of their self-identity very differently than we do today. If I ask who you are, you could respond in our individualistic culture, I am me. Like that makes sense to us. I am me. Whereas for them... The proper way of putting it is, we are us. Or as some sociologists would say today, in cultures around the world, I am we. The primary sense of identity is not found in who you are, but in who we are. One historian summarizes it this way, a person's family of origin was the primary source of status and location in the world and an essential reference point for the person's identity. Leaving his family was a big deal. Abraham leaving the customs of his family was a big deal. Leaving the idol worship of his family was a big deal. And why did it happen? Because God spoke. That in the midst of all of that self-destructive idolatry, God spoke and Abraham trusted. Genesis 12 is where we see this. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So what did Abram do? He went as the Lord told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. I got a map up here so you can picture it. Him and his family had moved from Ur down at the bottom up to Haran. And when Abram left his family, he moved there down to Shechem, where, where the number three is. And when he moved, it was a big deal. But God spoke and Abram went. God called and Abram listened. God directed and Abram obeyed. God promised and Abram truly believed 
God's word was all it took to redefine how Abram saw himself and the trajectory of the life that he would live. God's word was more significant than cultural norms. God's purpose was more defining than the baggage and brokenness associated with his family's idolatry. Every one of us in this room has grown up with broken parents. I'm a broken parent. Some of our parents have made more mistakes, perhaps worse mistakes than others. And today is Father's Day. And while many of us grew up with great dads, some of us grew up with dads who really did the best they could. For others, they felt like their dad didn't try or gave up altogether. Some of us in homes full of abuse or neglect, violence or addiction. And maybe when you look in the mirror, you see the brokenness of your mom or your dad. And you've come to a point where you define yourself based on the things you've inherited from them. You love them dearly, but you des desire desperately to break away and to redefine yourself. And it is precisely, church, that into this struggle, into this mess, into this chaos, into this self-destruction that God speaks. Would you listen? That God offers a new identity, not rooted in the flaws of your family, but an identity rooted in the faithfulness of Jesus. John chapter one. But to all who did receive him, who all who received Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God, re-identified, remarked, recharacterized to those who believe in his name. Ephesians chapter two. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and what? Members of the household of God, purchased by a savior who loves you. Your family past matters, but God's purposes matter more. Don't you hear this about me, church? None of the men who raised me are in my life, sadly. But 12 years ago now, I married into a wonderful family and my father-in-law has received me as his own son. That is a beautiful thing. His name's Paul and he's a wonderful man. But even if that was not the case for me, as it is not the case for some in this room, I would still have a family. That's you. And even if I did not have him, I would still have a father. And because of what Jesus did on the cross for me, church, I can identify myself not in light of my family's failings, but in light of Jesus' faithfulness. And that's important. First thing for Abram is his family. God spoke, he trusted. Point number two. Dumb moments don't have to be your defining moments. Dumb moments don't have to be your defining, unless, of course, every moment is a dumb moment. <laughs> I'm really glad people got that. You preach long enough and people stop getting your uh, cultural references. Young people, you can ask an older person what those pe who those people were. Our issue, church, is that we make mistakes. Abram made a bunch of mistakes. Abram had a lot of dumb in his life and God had had these amazing encounters with him and sprinkled, all right, in that was a lot, was a lot of dumb. Our issue is that we make mistakes in a brutally intolerant world. I wanna park here for a moment because the world has only grown more intolerant over time. The, the world has only grown more obsessed with guilt over time. As we have become less religious as a society, 
The world has saturated itself only more so with guilt. I'm gonna explain to you what I mean by this. That we live in what some might call a godless society in which we are, I just want you to imagine this, imagine this, in a secular society, as a secular society, we are constantly faced with the moral responsibility to either do better, to be perfect, or to help. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm not saying they're bad in and of themselves. You'll see where I'm going. But in this secular society, we are confronted from a very young age with our responsibility, our moral responsibility to confront evil, to serve causes, to prevent climate disasters, to fix racial disparities, all of these things with really vivid imagery of pain and suffering attached to them. And on top of everything else happening out there, you got to be perfect because if you make a mistake, someone's going to catch it on video, defining you for the rest of your life. Wilford McKay is a historian at the University of Oklahoma. He's pointed out that no prior generation has known this amount, this kind of tangible, heavy sense of weighty moral responsibility. And yet as the world rejects God, as society becomes more godless, the guilt associated with this responsibility only grows. What are people to do with this guilt? Well, they look for a means of absolution. But in a world obsessed with guilt, in a world obsessed with guilt, we look for ways to feel less guilty. New York Times writer David Brooks picks up on this. This is interesting, coming from the New York Times. He says, we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Talking about because of world becoming more secular. Worse. People have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but no formula for redemption. Mainstream culture has no clear path upward from guilt, either for individuals or groups. So what do you get? You get a buildup of scapegoating, shaming, and Manichaean condemnation. Isn't that interesting? That in our world as you're confronted constantly with the reality that you need, to, you need to fix the world's problems, and if you don't, you're a failure, that you need to be perfect, and if you don't, you're a failure, that with that comes a weighty guilt. And he points out that there's two great coping mechanisms that have risen in our secular world to try to get away from the guilt, because they don't have Jesus. They don't have a Messiah. They don't have a God that's take, come to take that guilt, so they gotta do something with it. So he points out, this historian, two, two coping mechanisms. First, you can shame others. If you can make other people feel more guilty than you are, then you can rest in knowing you're not the worst one out there. We do this by jumping on the imperfections of others, capturing those imperfections, and despite people's apologies, we don't, we don't let those things lie. We pull up old tweets even after they've been deleted, and we rub people's faces in it like a dog in its urine. Second, and Wilfred McKay, that historian, points this out, that the greatest coping mechanism in our secular society for a people full of guilt is to make yourself into a victim. Don't hear what I'm not saying. There are real victims and there are real suffering, but I want you to follow this because I think it's, this, is, this is fascinating. Because guilt is the result of being constantly confronted with my shortcomings and constantly being confronted with my failed moral responsibility, if I can think of myself as a victim... A victim isn't responsible. 
So to think of oneself as a victim is the ultimate coping mechanism for a world that gives you guilt but doesn't provide a means of redemption. Talking in generalities again. In this kind of world, you don't have the freedom to mess up. In this kind of world, people hide who they really are. This is why on college campuses, college students in huge quantities have, have, have shared in polls that they don't raise their hand or they don't share what they really think. They don't ask questions that they want to ask because they're petrified of what they might, how they might offend someone else. Who would have thought in our world that, is, that people out there would feel like they have to put on a mask far more than people in here? In this kind of world, your dumb moments very well may be your defining moments, especially if they're caught on video. This isn't what we see with Abram, though. We see in the life of Abram that while there is good, it is sprinkled with a lot of dumb. It is sprinkled with a lot of dumb. We don't know him or remember him, but it is there. In Genesis chapter 12, it says that when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, so the woman was taken to Pharaoh's household. Why? Because Abram told his wife, I don't, I, this might go poorly for me because they're, they're thinking you're hot stuff. So I need you to tell them you're my sister. And so he went in and literally handed over his wife to Pharaoh. I don't care how you want to justify this. That's a bad move. We call, that, that, that's a bit of dumb. Dude handed his wife over. Later on in Genesis chapter 16, Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Uh, Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, mind you, they had received a promise. They were gonna have kids. They're taking this into their own hands. Go to my slave, she says, perhaps through her I can build a family. One of the dumbest things any dude can do. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. How could he imagine that that would end up well? His wife, who was barren, even though God had promised she would have kids, goes and says, I want you to have sex with my servant. How can you imagine that going well? We call that a bit of dumb. I want to explain because some people would push back. Zach, you've got to understand their culture. Like it was, it was different back then. It was a little bit more normal. And I just want to point out uh, for, for, for those people that John P. Nielsen, a history professor at Bradley, has, has, has argued and pointed out that monogamy was actually the norm for the average person at this time. Polygamy was reserved mainly for kings and for royalty. But even beyond that, I wanted to ask the question, okay, has studies been done on how well so, uh, uh, socially or how well emotionally families do that are in polygamous relationships versus monogamous relationships? And there's been a ton of research done. And so scholars have gone into areas in Australia, indigenous peoples, in the Middle East, and in Africa, where in the same culture, polygamy is very common, but you also have monogamous people in the same, in the same culture. And they've studied who's happier, who's better off. Dr. Shepard of Oxford University, in summarizing a bunch of different studies in a meta-analysis, this is what he found. The identified studies are of mixed methodological quality but generally suggest the more significant prevalence of mental health issues in polygamous women compared to monogamous women. Individual studies report a higher prevalence of depression, anxiety, hostility, psychoticism, and psychiatric disorder in polygamous wives, as well as reduced life 
and marital satisfaction. Now I'll tell you, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more, were dedicated to studying whether or not a woman would rather share her husband or not. Any one of us could have given that them info for free. <laughs> Studies have done looking at children and looking at fathers across the board found the same exact thing. People in a married relationship with multiple people are far less happy and have far more issues than people who are in a committed monogamous relationship. And so, <clears throat> when I look at the life of Abram, after getting a promise from God that he would have a son, that his wife brings her servant to him and says, hey, I need you to hook up with her and give me an, give me an heir. It doesn't really sound like he thought about all the ways that this could go badly, which it did. So we zoom out with these mistakes. What we actually see is an interweaving of God's promises and interactions with Abraham. That in Genesis 12, when he first meets him and he calls him to go. And then you have God establishing and making a promise that he will be a great nation. And then in Genesis 17, after this, God establishes a covenant circumcision with him. That you see God coming in and out of Abraham's failures, each time having the same thing in common. That despite the mess that was of Abram's making, when God spoke, Abram trusted. And into the mess, God spoke. And yet Abram trusted. God doesn't give up on Abram. And Abram is not, by a long shot, he is not defined by these dumb moments. And to each bit of brokenness and into all failed decisions, God spoke and Abraham trusted. God called and Abraham obeyed. God directed. Abram believed. And it says that his faith was credited to him as righteousness, church. This is important because this is what the kind of redemption that our world longs for. It doesn't say that Abram worked hard enough or made enough good decisions that God loved him enough for him to have righteousness credited to him. That in the midst of all of his failures, when God spoke, he trusted. And that faith, is that is the thing by which Abram could stand before God and be declared not guilty with his account credited as righteous. This is why Jesus went to the cross, church. This is why our God took on flesh in the person of Christ. Because the guilt was real. The guilt that we feel is real. The guilt that the world feels is real. And God doesn't want you to be squashed underneath it. He doesn't want you to go looking for opportunities to shame others in order to feel better about your guilt. He doesn't want you playing the victim in order to feel better about your guilt. He wants you to understand that God came to do something about it, with it, to it. Because our rebellion and our sin, it had consequences and the wages of sin is death. So Jesus came to be our substitute, to die the death we deserve, to carry the weight of our guilt, to bear the weight of our shame upon himself on the cross, to face the wrath of God that we deserve, to absorb it on our behalf. And you look around this room, church, we are flawed people struggling in our sin, but we are redeemed people, adopted people in the household of God, being conformed in the image of Christ. Now that means, and you gotta hear this, that if your dumb moments are not your defining moments, it means that you do not have to hide who you are here like you do out there. And you shouldn't have to. 
It means that like the people Jesus constantly received, that no matter your circumstances, we should be able to receive you here, that God receives you. You don't need to fix your life before you bring it to God. Bring your life to God and he will help you pick up and put together the pieces, no matter how broken. This means if you are an addict, we receive you. This means if you are an alcoholic, we receive you. This means if you are struggling with sex or sexuality, if you feel shame for what you've done to or with your body or what others have done to you, we receive you here. If you've been a terrible friend, son, daughter, spouse, or parent, if you feel the weight of your poor relational choices, we receive you here. I could go on and on, but it's important for us to know that your dumb moments are not your defining moments. It's okay to not be okay, church. It's just not okay to stay there. That's important. Jesus received the very worst of humanity, some of the the biggest mistakes people made, and yet they left him changed. You know, Jesus received the woman at the well who had a lot of baggage, and she left that encounter with her life changed. Jesus received the woman who was dragged out of an adulterous encounter before his feet, and he says, who condemns you? Nor do I. Get up and go sin no more. That while hanging on the cross, bearing the weight of humanity's guilt and shame, that the person next to him, the criminal, he says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise, received in his dying moments. And to the established church, the the, the comfortable Christians, the one who've been perhaps doing this a really long time and have gotten a little too comfortable, you need to hear this, that when people come through these doors with their mess and their brokenness, it shouldn't cost them hiding their imperfections. It should cost us our comfort because life's messy. And just because you're really good at hiding it doesn't mean everyone else should have to. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. That's why we have ministries like Divorce Care and Grief Share that run during the year. That's why we have ministries like Celebrate Recovery, which Alan talked about last week, focused on healing. That's why we have small groups where we get to do this and be real with each other in the context of community. This is why we do life together. It's okay to not be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. But into each of those messes, and your mess is individual, it is unique, God speaks, would you trust? that Jesus died for you to give you life. Your dumb moments do not have to be defining moments. Pray with me, church. Lord, I thank you for, again, the opportunity to reflect on Abram's life. As we worship you now, Lord, may you challenge us and confront us in our hearts. May we see your goodness, Lord, as it intercepts the mess of our life. Help us to focus in on you, in Jesus' name. Amen.